Well, if your Bibles are open, I'm going to just start. I'm going to just read uh, the first uh, six verses, and then we'll, we'll work our way through uh, all 18 verses, hopefully, Lord willing, tonight. But let me just read verses 1 through 6. Follow along with me, Proverbs chapter 9. And um, one other, one other uh, place, if you can turn, just keep your thumb there, turn to Matthew chapter 7. So uh, Proverbs chapter 9, but also turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we'll be reading just a couple of verses there as well. Starting first with Proverbs 9, though. Verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. As for him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. Now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to read the red letter words of Jesus. So, a parallel passage, if you will. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 24. And we'll read verse 24 through 27. Now again, this is incumbent upon the hearer hearing, because Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, will li- I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of the sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. I remember Proverbs about wisdom and foolishness. will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was was its fall. Turn back to Proverbs uh, chapter 9. Just keep your space there. Now, during our time here on earth, we're given a choice. Uh, just grab my slides and bring them up. Uh, during our time on earth, we're given, a, uh, we're given a choice to either enter the house of the Lord, where we uh, read in Proverbs chapter 9, wisdom has built her house. We either can enter the house of the Lord or we can enter the house of destruction. Everyone on planet earth has this same choice, this same opportunity set before them. Jesus said in John 14, 2, in my Father's House, singular, right? House, singular, are many mansions, plural, right? But in the house, he said, are many mansions. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. He also said, I go and prepare a place for you. Now, back in uh, Proverbs chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but back in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 27, uh, speaking of the, um, the house of the immoral woman that we looked at uh, we're kind of looking at just kind of temptation and immorality. Uh, but that same passage also represents, as we, we briefly mentioned in, in chapter 7, it also rep- the, the immoral woman represents false religion and also the world's system, right? So you have a literal temptation from an immoral person, be man or woman. Uh, you have uh, the false religious system, and you also have the world system. So all of those things can be kind of the deceptive woman that we see uh, also mentioned in the book of Revelation. 
But it states back in Proverbs 7, verse 27, her house is on the way to hell. That's what the exact words say. Descending into the chambers of death, Proverbs 7, 27. In other words, there's only two houses, right? The Father's house and the house of destruction. There's only two houses. There's two different doors to enter in. We're going to see both those doors here in chapter 9, especially when we get to the end of the chapter. You'll see that there's actually two biddings or two invitations taking place here to the world. Two different doors to enter. Now, Jesus also referred to this choice in his earthly ministry. Matter of fact, it's in the same chapter of Matthew 7 there. If you read the whole chapter, matter of fact, you might want to read all of Matthew 7 and kind of see some of the parallels. But uh, Jesus, in the same chapter of Matthew, he says there's a broad road and a wide road, or a broad gate and a narrow gate. And the decision he speaks of is either a wise one or a foolish one. But the metaphor that opens uh, chapter 9 here uh, is that of a house. Uh, It is built already. It says, wisdom has built her house. The house is already built. The house is built. It's not being built. The house is built. It's ready to enter and to dwell there and even be fed there because it says, come and uh, eat of the the food here. All the the banquet table is ready. Everything is uh, ready to go. Uh, to enter in and to be fed is up to each individual. We've all been given this same choice. But in our lives, we not only choose which house to enter eternally, so that was that we were talking about this past Sunday, that that entry point of salvation, the the grace that saved us, the same grace that continues to change us over life, the same entry point of belief uh, was necessary for salvation, but we still got to believe the rest of our life for growth. Well, that's, uh, that house that we enter into, if we enter into the house, it's the Father's house, um, we have to choose which door to enter. And most of us, if we've come to Christ, we've already done that. But it's also, which house will we build spiritually? What will we build on in our life? In your lifetime, what will you be building on? What house will we be a part of? Uh, We're a part of Calvary Chapel, Richmond, this church fellowship, but we're part of the larger body of Christ. What house will you be a part of? And what house will we be built into? Because Christ is still building up the church. Would you agree with that? He's still building up the church. So all of these metaphors of the house are all found through Scripture. And if you're taking notes tonight, and even if you're not taking notes, the title's going to be the same, the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, as you can see here. We'll look primarily at four observations tonight from the text uh, that give us both guidance and warning. They give us both. Uh, but like almost any portion of Scripture, uh, there are other applicable ways we could look at this chapter. There's a lot of different uh, you know, viewpoints and nuances and truths that we could take away different facets from this passage. But our focus tonight... Uh, And our time here tonight will be focusing on the blessing and the protection of living in the house of the Lord. Whether you're in this building tomorrow or Friday, you probably won't be. You should be living in the house of the Lord no matter where you're at, right? All the universe is His habitation, but we live in the house of the Lord through the work of the Spirit. Now, before we look at these four observations, I want to put up two visual representations that reflect this chapter as well as some parallel 
uh, complementary passage in the New Testament. Now, we just read Matthew chapter 7. Uh, I already referenced John 14 too. Uh, but let me pull up a couple of um, other passages here that I want you to see. All right, the first, we, we looked at John, I referenced John 14 too. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, for we know that if our earthly house, the tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, right? Speaks of a house. Um, our earthly house is our body. We have a building from God that we'll go into, that this, this house will go into his house, then we have Ephesians 2, 19 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being what? The chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple. Where was the temple? It was the dwelling place of God on earth. Uh, in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit. So you see that we are a little house. <laughs> we also have the church being built into one house, but God's house, the Father's house, is already set and ready, and He's going to fit us and the church all into His house. That makes sense? These visuals, hopefully, they'll help a little bit. Before we get to that last uh, understanding, first one I want to point out, this comes directly from, take a look at this. This is a visual representation of Proverbs 9 and Matthew 7 put in one picture. You say, well, I didn't get that from, I didn't get that from Proverbs 9, and, and I didn't get that from Proverbs 9 or, or Matthew uh, uh, chapter 7. Well, some of it you, you probably did, maybe you're not thinking, you heard sand in Matthew chapter 7, you heard rock. Uh, you see um, here in the ninth chapter, Wisdom cries out from a high place. See how the rock is up higher where the, where the gospel and the wisdom is coming out. Um, now the world, Jesus is warning. Uh, Proverbs 9 warns the same thing. It says, whoever is simple, turn and hear. Right? Forsake foolishness and live. So calling out from this high place saying, come up. Come up and live. And Jesus says it in a, a, a different way. He says, build on the rock. Now, who is the rock? Well, it's Christ. And the Scriptures tells us that. That world will present as what you can base your entire life upon. And people will build. Notice that the world's houses, they're generally... Uh, Satan has kind of like track homes ready for everybody. Pleasure, he's got a house for that. Success, he's got one for that. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, now, religion, by the way, the, the door of each of these houses say self, uh, because religion is not a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion, you can enter through that door. It's your own works. You're trying to save yourself. Well, pleasure, you're trying to pleasure yourself. And success, you're trying to worship yourself. But there's other things, too. There's people that are uh, in just absolute uh, rejection of God out of anger. You can have a house for that, too. I mean, Satan will... To the, to the degree a person is uh, wanting to resist God, Satan will give someone a house that they can call home, and they'll build on the sand. Now, not every, uh, not, I don't think, I even think Christians at times build on sand. That doesn't mean 
at every time we've ever built, even for a short period of time, on sand that we're on our way to hell. But the ultimate, if you've spent an entire lifetime built on sand, then Jesus is making it pretty clear, especially if you read the whole chapter of Matthew 7, uh, that there's really just two roads here. Ultimately, we're to build on the rock, but our little house is going to move up into the big house above. We're built on the rock, but the same rock is where we're going to spend all eternity built on in heaven. Now, a lot of Christians, maybe not, well, yeah, Christians too. Christians and churchgoers, but uh, even people that I believe are born again, a lot of people try and find something different that maybe Jesus missed something, kind of something clever like this. What about this? Many a clever Christian over the last 2,000 years thinks they've found a workable solution to Jesus' plans and Satan's plans. And it looks something like this. Sadly, many ministries today are unwittingly teaching this hybrid model or willingly teaching this hybrid model. Some of it's just outright deception. And this kind of teaching has plenty of popularity that you could build a house like that. Half on sand, half on the rock. Paul warned Timothy that the day would come when people would demand this kind of teaching. Demand it. That's what he said. They're going to they're say, please teach us that we can have everything the world has and have all of Jesus. Paul said it would come. It's, it's definitely here. It's not new, but I would say it's expanding. It's been around from the beginning, even, before, even when Jesus left. But let me ask you this, if anyone can find one time, just one time in Scripture, that building that model worked, I would love them to show it to me. Just one time in Scripture that building half on God's command or half on Christ and half on the world, if it ever worked in Scripture, I'd love to see it. It's not in there. It didn't work for Lot, right? He tried that, pitched his tent towards Sodom. His wife fell in love with the world. He was so enamored. He was so enamored with Sodom. His whole family became enamored with Sodom. And he had, at first he just pitched his tent there, but he built as close as he possibly could. Didn't work for Saul, King Saul. Didn't work for him. Didn't work for Judas, right? He loved Jesus, but he also loved money at the exact same time. He couldn't stop his love for money. And his love for money became greater than his love for Jesus. Ended up selling the Lord. Didn't work for Ananias and Sapphira, right? They also, they loved the work of the church, but they loved people to think they were something special, and they loved what they could actually put away, and they were trying to build their little earthly kingdom, while at the same time having this great relationship with the Lord. Didn't work for Demas. He was, uh, he was in the ministry with Paul, uh, but he was, Paul said he loved this present world. That's why he fell away completely. And by the way, there's others. But some of them, that, some of them, I believe, were saved. Lot, we know, was saved because it says that uh, that righteous man, Lot, but even though Lot was saved, what happened? He lost his entire family in the process, building on that model right there. He had one foot on the rock and one foot on the sand, and so it collapsed. With Proverbs chapter 9 and as well as um, uh, Matthew chapter 7, it's calling us to come fully into the house of the Lord, not 
half one foot in, one foot out. And we want to look first at this op- what I've titled the open invitation. Before, before I do that, one last thing. I wanted to give you a, a visual representation of there's us, our individual house, that we are inhabited by who? The Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit. Then we, individual, you can put your name there where it says the believer. We are in the church, which is the body of Christ. That's not Calvary Chapel there. That is the worldwide church. We have brothers and sisters that are not Calvary Chapel. They might be Baptist or Presbyterian, but if they're born again, that's the church. It was um, J.C. Ryle who used to uh, say, he never asked people what church they attended. He asked them, are you part of the church? Not what church do you attend? And then lastly, all of us, When God brings the entirety of the body of Christ home, he'll bring us individually and collectively as what the bride, right? The bride of Christ. But that you're still going to be an individual in heaven. Matter of fact, another kind of cool thing about how heaven works, this whole house thing. When Jesus says, in my house are many mansions, could the mansions be us or literal mansions? Yes. Many mansions is all the individual house souls, if you will, of the body of Christ. But yet, you really will, and to the degree of your service for Christ, I, there's definitely going to be different reward levels in heaven. We don't know how, we'll find out how all that works, but we know there's different levels of reward. But there will be, uh, there won't be any little shacks in glory, by the way. There are no, he doesn't say, there's mansions plus shacks. Just give me a little shack up. You've heard that statement before. That's, but the mansions individually as people, but also uh, there really will be places of honor given to the works of uh, those saints on earth. But anyway, then all of us as the body of Christ will go up into the Father's house. Now notice the cornerstone of heaven, of our lives individually, and of the church. It's not pastors. It's Jesus Christ, right? We read. It's actually right there in the text when we read Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So again, hopefully these visual representations kind of take what you saw in black and white on the text and kind of give you a little picture of what scriptures are saying. First thing we want to look at tonight, again, taking note just these four observations from the text, starting in verses 1 through 6 here, the open invitation. There's an open invitation. In verse 4 it says, Whoever, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Now, Jesus is the door. He's the one saying, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Come unto me. He called himself the door. Let him turn in here as for him who lacks understanding. Uh, she says to him, come. Whoever's simple. What does that mean, whoever's simple? Well, whoever's still in darkness. Whoever's still without spiritual eyes, you know, um, we were all pretty simple, pretty lost, pretty tossed in our minds until we turn to the Lord, and He opens our eyes. He gives us understanding. Those without understanding, those that are still trusting their own plans for life, that's what it comes down to. Anyone you meet that's still Without Christ, still lost, still not born again, they're still trusting in their own plans. Whatever that may be, it may be a religion, it may be a philosophy, 
and maybe, well, if I put enough money away, I don't know how they're going to extend their life, but they can't. But they don't really think, a lot of people don't think about that stuff. They just put that stuff out of their mind. That's not part of the plan. But that's missing the most important thing is, is God is saying, you have to come. You have, a, you have a choice. You can live in my house forever or there's eternal destruction. That's what Jesus uh, is very clear about. At the end of this, uh, at the end of, um, just drop down to the end of verse 18 just for a second. We're going to read it. So look at the last word of 18, chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 18. Hell, the last word. I know that's not a lovely ending to the, to the chapter, but I didn't write it. I'm just reading it to you. That's what it says. So there is another, there is another path. But wisdom and the gospel, they both cry out from the same high place. So she cries out from the high places of the city. Uh, the gospel, the wisdom of the Old Testament, which is, which is uh, forerunner to the gospel and certainly uh, also part of the gospel, they both cry out from the highest place because both come down from where? Heaven. God is the one that gave us his word. His word came down to us so from a very high place, from the very one that created us. In verse 5, it says, Come, eat of my bread, drink of the wine I have mixed. Does that sound familiar? Eat of the bread and the wine? Is that We had the Lord's Supper Sunday. Remember that? Those of you who were here Sunday? Come and eat of my bread and drink of the very elements that Jesus said represented his body and blood are mentioned here. The very elements he said were representative of his body and blood on the night of the Passover feast, the night he was... Um, betrayed and sent to the cross. In John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread come down from heaven, and anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Have you eaten of that bread? Have you eaten of the bread of Christ? It's the only way to live forever. Look at the text again, verse 5. Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I mix. Forsake foolishness, and what's the next word? Live. Come, forsake and live. See, the sand foundation, our plans, our will, our sins that we don't want to let go of, if people will hold on to sin, they'll drown. I mean, eternally. But our sand foundation and these things, uh, Jesus said, repent and live. Here it says, turn, forsake foolishness and live. It's the same thing. It's to turn and go the other direction. It's a change of mind, a change of direction. This word come, where it says, come, eat of my bread. Revelation 22, verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let he who hears come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water freely. Again, it's a whoever. It got, you know, some people have a doctrine that um, God has assigned some people to heaven, and some people are assigned to hell. That's, that's a sh the strictest five-point uh, Calvinist view. Um, I do believe in sovereign grace, and I believe in free will, and they run on parallel tracks. Did God choose me, or did I choose him? Yes. Right? Do you, did you choose your wife, or did your wife choose you? Or was it a mutual thing? Now, in the sovereignty of God, he absolutely has chosen us, but he also, in his sovereignty, gives free will and that's why it says, come, whoever. Whoever means anybody, right? Doesn't mean, well, you actually can't because you were predestined for hell. Sorry. 
God doesn't say words he doesn't mean. Whoever means whoever, whosoever. The invitation is to anyone, and the invitation, as we already looked at in verse 1, the house is already built. Before Jesus went to the cross, it was already built. Remember Matthew 7, which we just read. Um, actually, John 14, sorry. In John 14, where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions, he makes that statement before he goes to the cross. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions, right? So the house is already built in that respect. It's built, and yet Jesus is still doing what? He says, I go to prepare a place. He's, the house is built, but he's preparing our welcome. That makes sense? He's preparing our welcome, and he, what else is he preparing? He's preparing the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at, look at, look at uh, these few verses. The meat's ready, the wine. She's also furnished her table. She's sent out her maidens. Sounds a lot like the marriage supper of the Lamb here, doesn't it? The table, the banquet table's ready. Jesus has gone ahead to prepare for our arrival, to prepare the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I believe that's alluded to here. Um, it's not expressly stated, but I believe it is alluded to here. Now, seven pillars are also mentioned. She has, sown, uh, she has uh, hewn out seven pillars. Uh, not only does Scripture... Um, recorded in Revelation 4 or 5, it says, uh, it speaks of the sevenfold spirit of the ministry of Christ. Revelation 4 or 5. Um, and those things, by the way, if you want to see what that sevenfold ministry of Christ was, uh, you can jot down uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. There you actually see the sevenfold work of the spirit that Jesus was anointed with when he came to the earth. But that was written, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus came. Now, also in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks. He has uh, a letter written, delivered by the angels to how many churches? Seven, right? The letters to the seven churches. Now, they were seven literal churches in Asia. And we certainly can see aspects of all seven churches in churches all over the world right now today. You can see churches that are on fire for the Lord. And in love with Jesus, you can see churches that are ice-cold, lukewarm, right? You can see churches that have lots of activity. And Jesus says, but you're dead, right? So there's a wide range. However, the, um, many, many scholars, and I'm in agreement with this. I'm not a scholar. I'm just in agreement with it. Uh, but many, uh, many pastors, Bible scholars, theologians down through history have believed that the letters to the seven churches represent seven seasons in church history, and I believe that's the case. What's the seventh final season? The lukewarm church. And this is what Paul said would happen when they want to heap up uh, teachers for themselves and the times will come. He talks about the end times. Uh, there would be a turning away from the word of God. And so we have these different seasons. If you study church history, many believe we've already passed through the other six seasons and we're in the seventh seasons of the church, uh, the lukewarm church. So we have the seven. But however, even in all seven seasons of the church through the last 2,000 years, whether it's been a good time or a bad time in the church, there's always been faithful saints. So they're part of the seven pillars no matter what. Does that make sense? doesn't matter which season you're from. 
uh, it could be only a few real saints in a church, but they will be part of the pillars of God. They'll be part of the house. They'll be, those that are not part of the house will be discarded, just like carpenters when they're cutting off dead wood or their piece that's not going to be part of the house, where does it go? In the dumpster. Only the pieces that are fitted for the house, that are hewn for the house. Now also it says, and we see the table, which can certainly be a reference to the marriage supper of their lamb. She cry, uh, her maidens have been sent out, verse 3. Well, Jesus talks about the wise and foolish virgins. We are sent out as the maidens or the servants of Christ, aren't we? We're the ones sent out. We're the ones supposed to go into your workplace and be a light in a dark place. At your family back in Christmas, you were supposed to be the light there. If no one else there knew the Lord, you were supposed to be the maiden or the maidservant or the servant sent to be a light for Christ in our daily life. We're sent out, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So he sent us out over the last 2,000 years. There's also um, a very similar um, look and feel to the fact that uh, there is the maiden sent out and there's this feast. Remember when Jesus has the a parable of the wedding feast? That's found in uh, Matthew chapter 22. And remember the first people that are invited? They're too busy to come. So Jesus sends them out. Say, hey, go, go, invite, go invite all the people that would be on the prime registration list. But they're too busy. They're like, hey, I ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for a prayer meeting. Get someone who's got nothing going on. Let them go, right? I don't have time to go to Bonaire and talk to kids. Get someone who doesn't have important stuff like me to do, right? So then finally, the, the, the master of the house says, just go invite anybody. Go invite people that have nothing, no title, no specific, uh, no prestige in the community. Go invite all of them, right? He became, and and said so the, the master becomes furious with those re, who rejected the invite. Isn't that interesting? There really is a heaven and a hell. There really is. And someday people will say, well, I didn't, I didn't realize it was that important. But that's why it's crying out with a loud voice. As it says, she cries out from the highest place with a loud voice. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Cries out from the, well, it doesn't say loud voice, but we're talking about the fact that crying out is loud. Now, that's the open invitation. Let's take a look at the, the part passage that comes next. Let me read it first. Pick it up with verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man, and he will be wiser still, or still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. You say, well, that's kind of a change in gear shift here. How do we jump from uh, that invitation to the next part? Well, let's take a look. I've titled, Open Hearts. We're sent out as the maidens to people who sometimes know a lot about God or sometimes know nothing about God. You'll meet people with varying... I've met people, even in America, that have never heard the gospel once. I've been shocked. But when people say everyone here knows the gospel, it's not true. Not everyone does. Even in this country, you will meet people sometimes that have never heard it. I don't know how. They were in such dark places that never really heard it. 
they, in households or whatever. And, but for the most part, and then we, most part, most people have heard portions of the gospel here and there, and in totality, they've heard enough. They probably have heard it all, most people, but not all. And certainly people that have come from other countries, in some cases they've come from uh, a restrictive Muslim nation. They've never really heard the gospel, things like that. So there's those situations. But regardless, people have a varied understanding of the gospel or a varied understanding of God. And it's God who knows what each person knows, what they're going to be accountable for on Judgment Day, how much they rejected, what they knew how much wickedness they were in. You know, there's levels of sin, by the way, as well in the Scriptures. We know that because there's different punishments for different sins in the Bible, right? Someone steals a cookie, we don't, give them, we don't execute them, right? Because we consider stealing a cookie not as bad as murder, right? So there's levels of sin, there's levels of judgment, and there'll be levels of how much people rejected. The more people have heard the gospel, the more severe the judgment day. But it's not our job to convict people. We can't convict people. It's God's job to open and soften hearts, right? It's God's job. You and I can't soften. We can't soften anyone's heart. We can be used as a tool by God, but his spirit through us is what does it. We simply invite people to the, to the open house, if you will, God's open house. We invite people to say, you want to come live with God forever. We invite people. We share what God has done in our own life, right? We share what he's done for us. We say, well, I don't believe it. Well, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's true. It's what he did. We share what he's done in our life. We share what Jesus has done for us and everyone else in the world and what they could never do for themselves. Now, you can share that with someone. They say, hey, I'm glad you found something that makes you happy. Pat you on the head. I'm glad you found a crutch you can lean on. So that's more than a crutch. This was God rescued me from a death sentence. Now, in verse 8, it says, uh, Do not uh, correct a scoffer lest he hate you. And by the way, in the latter half of verse 7, he rebukes a wicked man and only harms himself. Uh, whenever possible, don't sever a bridge of relationship that could be a future opportunity to either reshare or share in a totally different way. And sometimes it may not be with your lips. It may just be an act of service. Don't sever an opportunity. If someone is completely resistant, you're not, it's not your job to change their mind and change their heart. Now, you want to, if the opportunity is there, and you, you, by the way, you still present the gospel to people a first time. Jesus said, go in the world and preach the gospel to who? Every living creature. So no Christian would say, well, I think I got this right. If they're not interested, I'm not supposed to say a word. That's not what it said. First, the maidens cry out to anyone. Once people have heard the message, you cannot rebuke and beat them into the kingdom. That's not going to work that way. They may scoff. They may resist. They may even pity your Christian life. You're missing out on so much. We're doing Vegas as six couples, and it's going to be awesome, right? And we're going to do it all while we're there, whatever that is. No, God can turn their heart anywhere, can he? On the airplane, in some place they weren't expecting, and you and me may, may be the ones to welcome them so we can't 
cut off those bridges. We can't rebuke. Only the, only the Lord is the one that's rebuking the unsaved heart, the evil, it says the evil man here, or, the, or woman. Now, this has happened in my life several times. I don't know if it's happened in your life, but um, I can look back, and on different occasions, I had A, men, I'm speaking of men because most of my witnessing is to men, although there's opportunities I've had to women too, but I, um, that has to be in public places. It, it, men that are, I was counseling my coworker for an hour at Chili's. You know, uh, no, bad idea. But aside from all that, uh, I've had men that either didn't like me personally because of my faith in Christ, and yet I had shared the gospel with them, or I'd shared why their life was, you know, I don't understand why this is happening, and I would be an entryway for the gospel. Now, once I realized they would go no farther, I back off. They still don't like my faith in Christ, therefore, for a while, some of them didn't like me personally. I've also had ones that did like me, and they were okay with me, they just couldn't by their own words or, or not saying it out loud, sometimes just, just what they would say, you fill in the blank, they just couldn't surrender lives to Christ because they were afraid of what they'd have to give up, right? The rich young ruler. He wanted to follow Jesus. He knew he needed to follow Jesus, but he just couldn't let go. And he walked away what? Sad. He didn't dislike Jesus. He knew what he was supposed to do. So you'll meet people like that too, that uh, they either don't like your faith or they actually are okay with you, but they can't go where you're at because they're afraid of what it's going to cost them. So, now, I've actually seen some cool things in some of these situations. I've had phone calls. One of, the first one I'll never forget was one, a guy that, I mean, he was, he was heavy and um, uh, partying and drinking. And we, we were in South Florida together. And out of the blue, he contacts me like four years later. He said, I'm living in Tennessee. I'm born again. And all the stuff you used to talk to me came back to me. I had another guy that you know, was, was that actually in a men's Bible study with me and a few other men, and he wasn't saved yet. He thought he was. He was in the men's Bible study. He really, really wasn't saved, and he, I didn't know it. He was huge, a uh, huge guy, about 6'5", over 300 pounds. He told me he almost came across the table at me about 10 times. I didn't know this. Uh, I, would not, I might not be here today had, I, uh, had any of this happen, but uh, nevertheless, and he went on to be a, become a pastor and it's used powerfully in the prison systems in North Carolina. But I mean, and I can tell others, where people that I know for a fact, I just had to back it up because they weren't going to take any rebuke from me, God, or anybody else. You've said your piece, that's your faith, that's your religion, I don't want it for whatever reason. And that's kind of where I left it. But, you know, God is the one that over time can open those hearts. Now, even after salvation... If people are disciples of Christ, if people are disciples of Christ, and only then will people really be willing to be taught, instructed, and rebuked. The vast majority of people in American churches will not tolerate anyone coming into their life unless they're a disciple. That's why many people are offended and leave at the drop of almost anything. Are you insinuating that I am not spiritual? The mere insinuation, right? But, you know, Jesus had the disciples. He was constantly workshopping these guys, constantly. 
This is reflected in verse 8 and 9. It says, uh, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. There's not many people that will do this percentage-wise in the body of Christ. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he'll be still wiser. Teach a just man and he'll increase in learning. I don't know about you, brother and sister, but I hope you can seek out people that will pour into your life. Seek out people that actually sharpen you. Hang out with people more spiritual than yourself. They're not going to be lording over you. They'll be loving you. They won't be picking out all your flaws. They'll be building you up and encouraging you. By the way, not all saved people, like I said, they're not all, they're not all willing to receive these things. I believe many of them are still saved, but uh, one of the words for rebuke, you might think of rebuke as absolutely, well, that, that must mean someone just told me, uh, you are not being a good Christian. That's not what it necessarily means. That would be the rare case. Most people that are teachable rarely, your kids that are really teachable rarely get strong, like in-your-face kind of message from you if they really have a humble heart. What do they normally get? Some coaching. A little bit of, you know, one of the, one of the uh, definitions for rebuke is, one of the definitions is reason together. Well, I, I would much rather have someone reason with me than in my face rebuke me, but Many people won't even take even reasoning together because they are resistant not to you or me. They're resistant to God. So they're not teachable. They're not coachable. Really, only those who surrendered uh, to Christ as being disciples are the only people in the body of Christ that will be teachable. I didn't say perfect. Even disciples are far from perfect, but still teachable. The whole reason you te- need to be teachable is because we're not perfect. I've been listening to a message for the last couple weeks by Charles Stanley, and it's been great for me to pastors. Listening to this man who's been saved all these years, and he can still have people pour into his life and correct him. We need to have that kind of heart, be teachable, and uh, someone that actually... And what happens? Well, really, when these things happen in our life, look what happens. We'll actually grow in love. A wise man when corrected, grows in love. He'll actually love the person that actually helped bring them further. And both grow together. This is what happens in the house of the Lord, right? If the only put input, think about this, if the only input in our Christian life is congregational teaching like tonight, and this is congregational teaching is very important. Jesus did it. He would go into the synagogues. He would preach. Paul did it. He'd go in the synagogues, preach. That's called congregational teaching. Jesus would do it on hilltops, right? He'd sit the group down at a multitude on a, on a hill. I've been right there. Look over and look see a galley. It's like an amphitheater. And he would preach congregationally. But that's not the work he did with disciples. That was one-to-one and one-to-few, right? That's not congregational. That's actually getting close to people. Most people in the body of Christ have no close con. I don't know about a room this size, but percentage-wise in this room, it's probably pretty good. But I'm talking about you get wider out than this room here, go to Sunday mornings, go beyond that to all denomination churches, and you have very, very small group people that actually are getting discipled. And that's important because then that's where the instruction comes. That's where the teaching comes. Congregational teaching will never be enough. Congregational teaching is foundational, but not relational. Make sense? This is what we're doing here tonight is foundational, but not relational. Your own devotion, my own devotion, a little bit of radio teaching, a few books, that will never make us teachable. 
That'll only make us with knowledge. The only way we grow is people in our lives. Imagine a marriage where you never see each other. We, uh, we'd have our entire marriage through Skype. It's all through Skype. Uh, we live on two separate, we, we'll see each other when we're about 80, but it's a great marriage. Right? Doesn't make any sense. The foundation of the fact that you're staying in contact might be good, but there's no intimacy there. There's no real connection. So this is, uh, it may, may be a little painful sometimes, iron sharpening iron, but it's very important. In the house of God, he's hewing us, isn't he, right? He's hewing out these pillars. It takes a little bit of cutting sometimes. Over the years, um, I've seen people, as a pastor, I've seen people that will receive from me up here, but not down there. I know it. I know it. As soon as I, I mean, I, I don't, it doesn't take me too long to hang out with people to know they can receive. I don't even know why some people listen to me preach after the years. I'm like, you wouldn't do a thing I say if I was talking to you over coffee. But they'll even invite friends and whatever. I'm like, okay. Sometimes the friend gets on fire for the Lord. You know, so that, that's hap- that happened to me. I got invited to a Calvary Chapel. The friend that invited me went back to the world, and we got saved and became disciples. So you never know who's going to be a disciple. Uh, that's up to the Lord, but that's not just up to the Lord. It's up to the person's heart, right, too? But and it's not just me. I talk to other pastors. We all know. And they say, hey, there's lots of folks that sit in church. I told you, Charles Stanley preached in his own church, and 200 and some people members got saved. That's a big, important thing. Then, then you can actually be one that is being refined for the work in the Father's house, Right? Vessels of gold, silver, right? Um, but you definitely can't, back to lost people, you definitely can't rebuke lost people into the kingdom. You share the gospel, let it do its work, and just love on them as long as it takes. And by the way, even Christians that aren't yet disciples, I'm going to love on them anyway. I, I'm not going to force them into any, I can't force them. I'm going to love them whether they get on board or whether they're kind of like, I know you said, I'm going to still try and build half of the house on rock and half in sand. Well, when it collapses, we'll still be there to love you. We still will, because I've seen it happen. Warn people, you know, hey, don't don't, don't do that. It never really works. It'll work this time. Still love them anyway. Last couple of points here. Open hearts. The next one's open blessings. We like blessings, don't we? Does anyone not like blessings? Take a look at these verses. Um, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. If you and I have entered into the household of God, and if we become disciples, and again, it's very important that that we differentiate between saved and, and actually being a disciple of Christ, uh, a disciple of Christ is one who does fear the Lord. The only reason you would be a disciple is because you fear the Lord. If you don't have any fear of the Lord, you say, I don't need to be a disciple. I, I got a stamp says heaven, right? Now I go back and do it. Now, anyone who has that kind of cheap grace philosophy really needs to examine their own salvation. That's a different story altogether. We don't have time to get into that. But if you become a disciple, you're one who fears the Lord. In time... God really will bless you or I in tangible ways. Tangible ways. Things that we'll be able to look back and say, I can guarantee 
that blessing would have never come my way had I not surrendered this area to the Lord, whatever that may be. Tangible things. And not only in heaven, heaven will be an eternal blessing, but now, that's, that's what the passage says, for by me your days will be multiplied, years of life will be added to you. you we can actually reverse things through obedience. Isn't that great to know? We can reverse things through saying, Lord, I'm, I know I haven't been fearing you, but I'm going to start today. As we talked about this Sunday, was, this past Sunday, was just resurrendering, resurrendering these areas. This is not about becoming wealthy or becoming powerful or successful, but it is about receiving life, joy, peace, faith, and, and potentially... Uh, definitely an increase of wisdom, but potentially um, an increase of life. But God will do, he'll do things in our life. He'll refine our priorities through all these things. The fear of the Lord, he's going to refine what, you know, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. By the way, the good thing about seeking first the kingdom of God, it does not mean that there aren't other responsibilities in life. The, whole, the verse itself expresses that there's others. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That God knows you have to work. God knows you have to have a job. God knows you need time to be with your family. God knows you need to laugh every now and then. He knows all that, but he said, seek first the kingdom of God. And the other stuff, he says, I'll, I'll make it the best order you've ever had. And it'll actually add lives. And how, how would that add years of your life? People today are so stressed out, trying to manage life without God's help. And they're really shaving years off their life, whether they realize it or not. Even as a pastor, I could shave years off my life if I don't rest in the Lord. 23rd Psalm, another passage that you can lay over top of these passages. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. He leads me beside the water. He causes us to what? Lie down. He causes us to lie down, to rest. He'll add length of, uh, to our days. This portion is most definitely for disciples, though. His servants in the house of the Lord, they're serving him. They're serving him. This is not just doing Christian stuff and maybe helping out due to pressure or guilt from somebody. No, it's not doing it because you have to, but because God has invited you in. And we have a healthy awe and respect for what Christ has done for us. And we fear him in the Lord and we follow him. And throughout Proverbs, we go throughout this book, we've got more chapters obviously to go. We'll see other blessings. There's other blessings that God desires to pour out on us as as believers on us as children. Um, but like we looked at Sunday in John 14, the blessings that come are through the Spirit, and they are dependent on our surrender and loving Christ and what he's commanded us to do. That's, that's where the peace comes from. People try and buy peace, right? They try and buy peace. You can't buy it. You can only receive it from the Lord. Now, God does allow certain trials in all of our lives, doesn't he? He allows certain trials in all of our lives, Certain trials are going to come. Uh, and not everyone's guaranteed a long life. Do you think John the Baptist lived a pretty faithful life? I think he did. <laughs> See, uh, how, how, here's how you can know. Jesus said, not a greater man was ever born a woman. That pretty much solves the mystery right there, right? John was incredibly faithful in the, in the scheme of uh, uh, mankind uh, history. He was a faithful man, but he, did, he didn't live past early 30s there. Why? Because it was appointed to him at that time to glorify God with an early death. 
But most people don't have an early death. You realize that, right? Most people don't. And the blessing that God is... Proverbs are general rules. They're not a guarantee, but as a general rule, God wants to bless those that follow him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it very well could add years to our life, and when we add years to our life, we could bring more people into the kingdom. And you might get to see the kids and grandkids and all. I tell teenagers, you want to live a long life? Honor your father and mother that your days might be what? Long upon the earth. The verse is either true or it's not true. Now, I know that there are a few, again, people that God will call home early. I'm talking about believers and even faithful saints. But for the most part, this is something that we follow and believe in. People do die prematurely, not just due to stress, but sin that they have invited in their life. And you know, Paul speaks of this in the New Testament, people taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner because they've got sin in their life. Many sleep, Paul said, many sleep and die, pass on because they've resisted the Holy Spirit calling them into surrender. As the great hymn, uh, uh, the great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. You can make a million dollars and lay in bed and not be able to sleep because your mind is so wrapped around what you're trying to attain. You know, God did that to kings that had it all. He took sleep from them. He's saying, look, these are things that God wants to give us. He wants to add to our life. He wants to add peace. Someone might say, hey, I'm a believer, and I'm not surrendered, and I don't want to be a disciple, and things are going great in my life. That person might want to make a beeline to the cross. Because to even think that way is arrogant to the face of God, isn't it, right? Might want to make a beeline and get those things, give the reins of your life over to the Lord, because uh, just if a man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And finally, in verse 11, um, or, or verse 12 here, uh, if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. Um, we can't make these decisions for each person has to individually either submit or surrender. Can't make it for somebody else. Last thing we look at here tonight, I, I, I have the least amount of time to spend on it because we've, we've actually covered this quite a bit in previous chapters, but verses 13 through 18, let me just read it quickly and then I'll just wrap it up here. A foolish woman is clamorous, she is simple and knows nothing. By the way, this is the world system. The world system knows nothing. Do you realize how many times they've tried to fix the same problems in America over the last 50 years? But it's loud. The media covers it, right? It's clamorous. This is the greatest thing. On the front of Wall Street Journal, this is the greatest idea ever, and it falls as flat as everything else did before, right? Loud and clamorous. Remember when eggs were bad for you, then they're good for you, then they're bad for you, then they're good for you, right? The world doesn't know as much as it thinks it knows. By the way, I eat eggs, so anyway, I just Jesus said that eggs is good, so I'm pretty I'm taking his word for it. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat by the highest place of the city. Now, Satan is prince of the power of the air. He has a false height of which he projects his message. God really owns the high place, doesn't he? But, but there's a false height on a high place as well, to call those who pass by, who go straight, uh, 
go straight on their way. Look at verse 16. It's the same, I tell people all the time, Satan does not have a sign that says this way to hell. His sign says this way to heaven. Look at verse 16. Whoever is simple, turn in here. Hold on. That's what the maidens were saying. You and I are telling people, hey, you want to find life in Jesus. But Madison Avenue says, you want to find life, you need to buy this. You want to find life, divorce your spouse and marry the other person. That's what the world says. Hey, if you find happiness, makes you happy, right? Whoever is simple, turn in here, verse 16. Him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. What the world is so deceptive, it, it acts like God doesn't care. God doesn't care about this stuff. Just do it. Israel fought that way. Like they even said, God doesn't hear, he doesn't see what's going on. Stolen water. Doesn't care how we live. We can live any way we want, do anything we want. The simple um, come in and the world says, we, we know what you need to make you happy. It's sad, you know, so many people um, look to the world for solutions. I, I'm not saying that there's not a real need for psychiatrists and medical doctors, and there really is. But if people would start first and foremost at the foot of the cross and start with the scriptures, many people would be healed from things that they'll never get healed from in this world until they turn to God. Drug addictions, right? Pornography addictions, all kinds of things that people are in. Those things won't go away until you surrender to the Lord. Until you turn into... There's, there's two voices saying to the simple, come in this door, come in this door, right? And the world's religions have deceived a lot of people too, whether it's Hinduism Islam, Scientology, which, you know, I've seen this new show with uh, um, Lee Ramini. Um, you know, just it's it amazing what people will buy into where God is saying, come live in my house forever. And not only will you live forever, I'll start adding to your life right now. That's the, that's the promise. The house of the Lord is the future, but it's also the present, right? We are. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us now. He wants to fill this church now, and he wants to take us all to heaven to fill us eternally. Amen? Let's close in prayer.